I suppose prostituted is the best word I could use. I just felt like my beautiful talent was just for hire to be used by anyone. And I could go and do gigs and people would listen or people would not listen. I thought this is so demoralizing. This is not what I was put on the earth to do. That's Deborah December, abstract artist, jazz musician, woman, mother, and more. She was on stage playing music from the age of 10 and it was who she was. Yet in her 50s, she retired that life because she had nothing left to give it. Then art spoke to her and gave her a new direction in her life, one even more powerful. Deborah believes that art speaks and it speaks powerfully, that we have a visceral response to the colors, the energy and the subject matter on the canvas. It was art that brought her back to life and reinvented what it meant for her. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. I have a wonderful guest with me today and it's someone I actually met online and we seemed to kind of gel in our Instagram DMs together and comments on each other's stuff. So it was actually a gift, which is really interesting because her name is Deborah December and it is December. So it's really appropriate that we're meeting today. And Deborah is artist, musician, woman and so much more and a wonderful story that allowed us actually to have a really great conversation that we thought we should have recorded as the intro call. But let's get dive into it now. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Manola. You're so welcome. So let's start with this idea of your journey. You were a musician from age 10, on the stage from age 10, and lifelong musician. And then coming into the ages of 51, 52, feeling dread about it. Like that's... I, I'd like to start there, but if you want to start earlier, please share. Now, that, that's a good place to start because, you know, as a woman on stage, you have an expiry date. I mean, that's very well known. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, there's always going to be someone younger coming up, no matter what industry you're in. But it is uh, extremely poignant when you're uh, under spotlights, uh, risen up on a stage and, and amplified through a microphone. Um, and there's yeah. only so much, you know, you can only keep on, keep on with that for so long. And I did a lot of recording yeah. and I did a lot of other very interesting musical, uh, I, I had a lot of other interesting musical experiences. But after 40 years, you are, just you are run dry. You are drained. I didn't. I didn't feel like I had anything more to say musically. <laughs> I really didn't. I just. I was exhausted, yeah. and um, I just wanted to. I just wanted to lay down and rest. When you hit your fifties, do you think that's kind of common? I think so. I think if you've been in the one career for all that time, and and generally mm. people from uh, our era were uh, taught to be loyal to a particular career or a pursuit or an employer. Um, these days, people 
have two or three jobs. They might switch employment companies within six months, 12 months, two years. And on your resume, that doesn't look bad. That just looks like someone who knows how to pivot. You know, so that's someone who's a go-getter and someone who's on the cutting edge. But for our generation, someone who flipped around like that was not considered stable. So you you were taught to stick at it. You know, you were taught to have grit. And, yeah, I do think um, growing up in the 80s and then into the 90s, our generation, there's a bit of a lost, I feel like the era of the lost um, teenage life in the 80s, it was, you know, the world was in chaos. It was all talk about, you know, nuclear this and it was a very tumultuous time and our parents were sort of having their own second childhood. Well, my parents were anyway. And um, mm. it was really the age of divorce. You know, the 80s was the first time when divorce was considered not so taboo, even though it was horrible. And I mean, I guess for some people it was, but there, there began the fragmentation of the family unit really began to hit its straps in the 80s and then into the 90s. And by the time the 90s came, People who were coming up under me, I was in my 20s, people who were 19, 18, 19, had international careers. And I thought by 26 that I was just so old, completely washed up. What will I do? Wow. You know, so I was in New York and I was um, trying to get a record deal and uh, I it, it was... Oh, what can I say? It was very difficult and there was a very old-fashioned way of going about that. You know, you had a manager, if you were a woman, there was a certain kind of behavior that you had to adhere to to get past the gatekeepers, and I was not prepared to do it. So it didn't, yeah. didn't matter how talented you were. Um, I think for every maybe five or six people who are signed, one person is pushed and the other four are shelved to let yeah. that one person. Like if you've signed five great talents, and you shell four, then you've taken four great talents out of the race. Then you've only got one horse in the race now. So you can put all your effort wow. behind that one. And that's very common practice in the music industry, very common. So anyway, for, for whatever reason, you know, I sang a lot of jazz. I did a lot of songwriting. I played with a lot of great people. And I came back to Australia and, um, again, just continued recording and singing and playing. And uh, I think... I saw my male uh, peers have children, but mm. in their 30s and 40s, yeah. they were having children, and uh, because they had wives who would stay at home and look after the children, and they could be out on the gig. Yeah. But it doesn't happen that way uh, for again for women in the industry. It's not very female friendly, really. I don't think the music mm. industry. Um, people might disagree. I don't know. Um, well, you've seen the me. Do you think it has improved? Oh, well, with the Me Too movement just coming out, uh, it would suggest to me that it's um, the same as it ever was, I think. Yeah. Um, for, for the head of Sony Records in Australia to be fired for uh, either sexual misconduct or having a, cult, a toxic culture was absolutely monumental. That man had been in that position for over 40 years you know, ruling like a, um, a a demigod. I mean, just unbelievable how much power people mm. at the top have. And um, mm. so, yeah, we saw, we've seen a lot of 
um, change in the music industry, I think, with the Me Too movement. And that was in the, um, and Harry Weinstein, my gosh, um, Dennis Hanlon from Sony Australia pales into insignificance compared to Harvey Weinstein. And, um, you know, I was just hearing about the careers that he shelled, like Uma Thurman and wonderful actresses who, um, who, would, who wouldn't play the game or didn't play it well enough or didn't play it the way he wanted them to, so he shelved them. And I just find that unbelievable, but there it is. Do you think, how is this affecting women now, do you think? Do you think we're coming into our own? Do you think we're starting to put our, put our best feet forward, but in our own way? Because I know in the 80s what we would have seen is women emulating men and being ball breakers and tough nuts and all of that kind of stuff, which was kind of making their own femininity smaller than it was just to try to conform with what what was happening. Do you think we're moving to a space where our strength as women, our own male side and our female side coming together to actually to bring a new woman forward? Oh, absolutely. I do think that. I think there are Particularly in the movie industry, there's producers and directors, uh, women producers who own their own production company, who are yeah. really kicking goals, really putting big movies and uh, on the map, and are really uh, doing business with you know huge studios. I think very much women are coming um, into their own in that way. I still see in terms of being on stage or in front of the camera. <coughs> If you're 50 and you don't look 30, yeah. are you really going to get the gig? Yeah. You know, are you going to get the gig? And then you've got people like Paulina Poroskova, for example, who is just, I think she's just released a book called Unfiltered. And it's about aging. Mm. It's about her marriage. It's about, um, you know, she was a supermodel in the 90s. And I think she's only one or two years older than me. And just, um, you know, redefining what a woman in her 50s is all about. Yeah. And and not And we need that. Absolutely reclaiming the power but but saying, you know, how dare how dare somebody be upset with me for aging? Like what's the alternative? Yeah. Death. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, she she's um ah, it's just a really interesting journey to watch her on Twitter and on Instagram. Um because she is she's turning up raw and Mm. and very powerful and not afraid to mm. show her vulnerability, which includes what a woman feels as she ages in terms of her attractiveness and her desirability and um, the fact that we're happy and fulfilled at this age is, uh, is hard for people to take, actually. It would appear that it's Why? very – she's getting a lot of kickback. Um, and she yeah. she led this hashtag on uh, on Twitter something like um, uh, fifty and miserable or something and and all these people over fifty were presenting pictures of themselves having the time of their life hashtag fifty and yeah. miserable it was hilarious absolutely yeah. hilarious and um, you know in it. many ways it's the best time of your life for sure I agree yeah I agree let's talk a little bit about you hitting fifty. And where, as you described it to me, you said at 52, you felt numb with two teenagers. You had no direction, no purpose, and you couldn't care about anything. Like, so this is, 
where you were at that age. Tell me about that. Tell us, share this story, please. Okay, well, this was probably, a, I guess it was a bit of a dark night of the soul. It was the most strange period of my life. I'm a very high energy up person, very creative. Um, even if I wasn't making music or drawing and painting, I'd still be doing something creative. I could always, you know, I'd be just doing something with my hands, with my mind. But this, I had nothing. I had nothing in the tank. I had not a thought in my mind. I had not a feeling in my heart. I was so numb. I, I just felt quite robotic. And I was upset that my beautiful teenage children didn't have a lively mother because they had had a lively mother when they were younger. Um, but, but she'd gone. She'd, she'd left. And, and I was left with me. And um, I guess at the time I was perimenopausal or menopausal and my body was doing strange things. And I think just hormonally, I, I don't know, I, I just shut down. And all I can say is that I was... I was just numb, going through the motions of living each day. It was a very strange experience. Not unusual, though, I think. I, I guess that's true. I mean, people talk about a midlife crisis. I don't know if that's what it was. And, you know, I've since seen a psychologist, seen a psychiatrist, went to my doctor, got a diagnosis um, of ADHD, which can often, you know, the swings of ADHD can mimic bipolar. And so there's always a talk, is there a bit of that in there? Well, who knows? Um, it's not unusual for artists, writers, um, musicians to be manic depressive. It used to be called manic depressive. Now they call it bipolar. And now ADHD has come into the mix as well. So um, I think just uh, stabilizing emotions, uh, having mastery over your thoughts and feeling alive, doing finding joy in something. And it does sound like depression to me. It sounds like classic depression. I found joy in nothing. And it was very strange, mm. very strange. Mm. There wasn't even tears. But I, it wasn't even like I was upset. I wasn't crying or upset. I was just nothing. Yeah, that's really, that's worse. Yeah, yeah. it is worse. Now tell me, your psychologist said something to you. He said, what do you like doing? Anything. Um, and you answered. And I said painting. Painting was the only thing I could think yeah. of that brought me any joy whatsoever. Mm. And you said this wonderful statement that art brought you back to life. The colour became your lifeline. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. I, I couldn't believe how excited I was to get up in the morning and play with paint and pencils and crayons. And I just felt like, a child, but I guess that's who I needed to contact deep within was the child within. There was, you know, I'd, I'd hit the wall. I had been adulting since I was in my teenage life. I mean, that's just the way our family broke down. And I had been adulting mm -hmm. for too long and holding it together for too long. And, um, you know, the body can only take so much and the mind can only take so much. So I used to do these little watercolors and um, mm. it just, uh, just, the, just the, the tactile flow of the brush and the water and the paint on the paper and the various colors mixing together and just the simplest of things brought me so much joy. Watching the, watching the pigment and the water mix together 
and splay mm. out onto the paper. And uh, I felt strange about that too, but I didn't care because it was bringing me joy. It was, it was a different strange, but it was better. Why was it strange? Well, I thought you're a 50-year-old, you're a 53-year-old woman <laughs> sitting in this little office playing with paint. Uh, is this what it's, is this what your life has come to? <laughs> is this what? Yeah. That's what I yeah. got. And, um, yeah. you know, because we, we pride ourselves on achievement, you know, we want to feel accomplished yeah. and we want to feel yeah. like we've got it together and we've got a few runs on the board. And, um, and a, a, at this point in time, all that amounted to nothing. Mm. Staying alive and finding joy in the moment was about all I could manage and the only way I could manage it was with these little watercolours. And that was, mm. that was very, uh, you know, I, I, I surrendered to that. I accepted it. I surrendered. And I just thought, well, this is what it's come what to. What made you surrender? Surrender is such a an act of trust, of it's such a powerful act to surrender. It is a what, very what, powerful what, act. Had, yeah. How did you do it? Surrender to win. You know, that's a, that's a recovery concept, surrender to win. And it goes against our ego. It, the ego will hang on for dear life telling you it knows what to do, it knows what's going on. But your true self, who you are at the core, finds out that the ego is a fraud and says, no, I'm not doing it anymore, and surrenders and trusts the universal parent, God, uh, the higher power, whoever. You have to have trust in something outside yourself to be able to surrender. And I don't even know at that point if you know what it is. I don't think you know what it is, but you just believe like a child. It's childlike trust. This is how it goes. If I surrender, everything's going to be okay. Whereas the ego says, if you surrender, that's it. It's all over. It'll all fall apart. Yeah. So powerful. Such a powerful thing. Um, I also love this idea that you did these courses. Um, you decided to push the art a little bit more and you started to do these courses. And um I love this story that you told that you saw that all these teachers had rolls of canvas. So you decided to get one too, except yours was 2.5 meters tall and 30 meters long. I love it. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, That was hilarious. You know, after I'd sort of fallen in love with color and the little paintings, I thought, um, you know, I'll, I'll go and buy some canvases. I had a whole bunch of art materials that my father had gifted me before he passed. And I'd been too afraid to touch them. You know, they, they sat in boxes. I was absolutely petrified of them. And, um, you know, paint. What were you afraid of? What were you? F- well, that I might use them and be horrible, be terrible. What if I, <laughs> what if I got the paint out? You know, all these high, all these really good quality oil paints and, and acrylics and all these, um, artists' tools. And, oh, I wouldn't touch them. No way, because I was afraid of what, might be the truth or you know anyway I don't know so so I uh I I envisaged myself scaling up from these small watercolors doing some work on canvas and I obviously came across some art courses and I investigated and uh, very reasonably priced and I got onto it and I 
started off with two and they told you the materials to get, you know, get this canvas, get this paint. But I could see in the background, in the, in the teacher's studio, they had rolls and rolls of canvas. And she's saying, well, this is raw canvas and this is gessoed canvas and this is lightweight and this is heavyweight. And this is linen, all these different um, things. And as a woman who's loved, I love to sew. I've always sewed my own clothes. So a roll of canvas, I'm not thinking it's a big deal. I'm just thinking it's like material. It's a bolt of material. But this roll of canvas turned up on the doorstep and I could not believe it. It was, we have quite a large entranceway. It filled. It was as tall as the entranceway. (laughs) I come home and I'm like, what the heck is that? And it was just massive. And um I thought, oh, well, I've done it now. I'll uh, I'll have to learn. And then? I'll have to learn how to stretch this canvas over frames. So I then started to get some timber and build some frames and get the men's shed down the road here. I live in a sort of a small country town by the sea, and there's there's a men's shed where they do repairs and things on on timber objects, and and they helped me to build some frames, and then I learn how to stretch the frames and oh I was off it was project but that's a whole reinvention though Deborah like it's amazing you've gone from music 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 and the thing that we should share also is that when you started the art you actually retired your music career I did yeah that was a weight off that was such a weight off my uh shoulders it it was a weight it it uh I I had I'd gone as far as I could go I was doing things I didn't want to do just because I was a musician and just because I had to put food on the table and I felt completely, I suppose prostituted is the best word I could use. I just felt like, yeah, you know, diminished. my beautiful talent was just for hire to be used by anyone and I could go and do gigs and people would listen or people would not listen. I thought this is so demoralizing. This is not what I was put on the earth to do. It was just horrible. I love that you took that and allowed that to, again, it's a release, a surrender, and then discover something else that came to life. And you then learned carpentry and all of that stuff and and produced this amazing series called the Messiah series. Yeah. Which is actually how we started talking to each other. Ah, yeah, that's right. Tell us about, because they're beautiful pieces. Thank you. Yeah, the Messiah series was an interesting, how, how that came about, along with learning to paint and learning to build and, and learning about all the technical aspects of art. I also wanted to, or it just happened about, that I wanted to get into the, the emotional side, the spiritual side of being an artist. And I'd heard about this book, yeah. The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, and it was how yeah. to unblock your creativity or something like that. And I did not think I was blocked at all. Even though I'd just come out of that uh, season, I thought, oh, complete, I, you know, the cork is off. I'm completely blocked. Yeah. But then I, as I did yeah. this course, um, it was, it was uh, very penetrating. You know, it really had a lot to teach me. And the further I went, um, the more courageous I became. And... Mm. I allowed my creativity just to be authentic and be unleashed. Mm. And I thought, 
I've had to sing things I didn't want to sing to people I didn't want to sing to. I'll be damned if I'm going to paint things I don't want to paint for people who don't want to see it. I just didn't care. I did not care. I just wanted to paint what I wanted to paint. I wanted it to have the meaning that, that it meant to me. And if other people liked it, fine. And if they didn't, fine. So coming from a Judeo-Christian faith, uh, my dad was a jazz musician and a minister. I was raised in that faith. My name's Deborah. It's a Hebrew name. Deborah Abigail, actually, they're both Hebrew names. I have this long tradition of the Hebrew language and the ancient Hebrew text and these poems and the Psalms and words like ruach that means spirit. That was the the signature piece. I did the first painting. It was blue, blue, very calming color. And I got all the blue um, paint and ink and I'd stretched this canvas. I was painting on raw canvas. I thought this was very chic, Mm. what I was doing. You know, I was just trying new things. And it came out so beautifully. I was I was shocked, mm. really. I thought, wow, mm. I made that. That's amazing. And I felt like I was in mm. partnership with the universe, making this great art. And um, I thought, well, I'll do one big one and then I'll just do a whole bunch of little ones. And mm. uh, when you're listening to your intuition and and it's like you're, you feel like your life depends on it, I think you get very clear messages and you're really willing to Mm. obey. And so when I said, oh, I'll just do these little paintings, I got a clear message. No, no, you won't do little paintings. Mm. You'll do big paintings. They're all going to be one meter square and they're all going to have be one color, but all the many different hues and textures and transparencies and variations of that color. And, and uh, I don't know, I, I, I was like a sponge studying abstract expressionism and, you know, all these paintings, some were very geometrical, some were very sort of moody and um, colours blend, like the the different hues of blue blending into each other. Others were uh, quite dynamic and raw and a lot of energy on the canvas and a lot of hidden meaning. so even though it was all, but I could feel that I can. When I when I look at them, I can feel the stories of them. You think that one color cannot make an impact, yet it's so evocative and and visually is a visual story that that we feel. You know, it's a really powerful thing, Deborah. Thank you. Uh, it was. It was challenging, and it was a good story mm. to tell. When when the seven paintings yeah. went up in the gallery. It was a great story to tell. It had taken me two years to build this body of work. I built every frame. I stretched every canvas. Um, each name had a meaning in Hebrew or Greek or English, and it was all the emotions and the spirit uh, of the Christ, the Messiah, right? So mm. the most painted mm. figure in art and art history would have to be Jesus, the you know the Christ before his birth, mm. the Annunciation, all the great artists of history. My favourites, Caravaggio and Salvador Dali, mm. have both painted mm. him in various stages of his life. But everybody painted him as a person, and I wanted to paint mm. his emotion. 
So that is not easy to paint a non-bodied concept. I mean, painting an emotion without painting a person or an expression on a face or a flower or a tree, to paint emotion without painting a thing, an actual object. Yeah. But you did it because I can feel it. When I look at them, I can feel it. Wow. Bravo. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you very much. It, 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 was, um, it was a powerful experience for me. And, I mean, I had to pinch mm. myself in that gallery. Uh, two weeks I was there and the comment and the response from uh, the public and collectors um, that blew me away, blew me away. Um, some people yeah. wept. Some people broke out in tears. I mean, I was, wow. <laughs> and I, I found that the art was as powerful for them as it was for me, and that was a shock. Yeah, that was a shock. Why was it a shock? Well, you know, it had taken me two years, and I'd been through the ringer with it. Yeah. You know, uh, questioning my worth at times, like. Yeah. Who do I think I am doing this? And and paintings take you on a journey. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh no, yeah. I've ruined it. Yeah. Oh no, I've got it back. You know, like it's it's so yeah. rigorous and it's really physical. You know, I, I think physically I was out of shape and I, I really struggled mm. physically. I mean, better shape now than I was then, that's for sure. But it's you set the intent though to follow this intuition and not play small. I know. And it reminds me, it reminds me of this part of our conversation, which is, and just to, not to be so, I don't want to labor the, the, in the fifties piece, but I, I really think we need to give voice to this, but it was, and it struck me that you have two options at this point. When you're looking at your 50 year, you realize that the time ahead is less than the time that has been passed. Oh yeah. That really struck me. And I, and I feel that connection to this piece of work that you did. I think so too. I, exactly that. You come to a realisation as you turn 50 or sometime in that early 51, 52, there are more years behind you than there are ahead of you. Yeah. So if you want to do something, you better get on with it. Because before then, you have the luxury of one day this and one day that. But by the time you're in your early 50s, you know full well that one day may never come or that you don't even know yeah. about tomorrow because you've seen so many lives and their outcomes by this point, you know mm. I'm either going to hunker down and get on with it and really make a mark or at least give it my best shot. If I, if I don't hit the mark I'm after, I gave it everything. I, I can rest in yeah. peace knowing that I gave it everything. Yeah. Or I can just sort of say, oh, well, I'm too tired now. I'll just... Do you think? Uh, do you think a lot of people give up and say they're just too tired? I think so. I didn't used to think so, but I do now. The further I go, the further I go into it, mm. the harder it gets. The deeper the personal development part of the journey becomes, and I understand why people would back down at a certain point. Because in order to have the new life, you have to give up the old. You have to give up yes. your old self. You have to give up the old life. And it will mean giving up people, places, and things. If you're really serious to become all that you were made to be and to get the most out of you, 
uh, it will mean losing parts of yourself and losing other people. It, it will mean that because you change the dance steps and the partners and the people and the places and the mindsets you were dancing with yesterday, last week, last year, don't fit the new dimension, don't fit the new landscape. They just don't. They just, you've got to let go. You literally have to let go with one hand to grab yeah. onto and pull forward, pull into the next. And um, it's, it's very confronting. A few years ago, I came across this quote and it always resonates with me. It's, and it's exactly what you're saying. The price of the new life is the old one. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and we think that that's a nice saying until. No, I don't. <laughs> and, until it's actually. It's really hard. <laughs> well, it, it, it sounds like something someone could say, but until you're actually feeling it and living it and walking mm. it out day by day, um, you're like. It's oh, shocking. It is. It really is. And yeah. there is a learn, there is a, a certain kind of loneliness, I suppose you could call, to leveling up. And basically, that's yeah. what you're doing. If you're going to move forward and get the most out of yourself, you're going to level up and you're going to do it in every area. It's not just going to be uh, your relationship life or your health or your work or your, or your finance or whatever. It's going to be all of them. It's all of them. It, you yeah. know, they, they bleed into one another. And yeah. uh, it, it, you shift your energy. And by the very nature, everything is energy, actually. You, f you figure that out. Mm. It's all energy. Mm. And as you shift your energy, the energy shifts around you. And you can choose whether to keep on with that or slip back into familiarity. Yeah. But I'm also encouraged because of your story that that is a time of great power at this age, that this becomes eminently possible and a matter of choice. And I'm also remembering you talked about practice and ritual that feeds the energy and that power to be able to, and there's an ebb and flow of this, you know, because you have to back off and rest as well. But can you share a little bit about this productivity piece and how you discovered it and because it will help others. Well, first of all, I, I will just have to say, um, I feel like a lioness, absolutely mm -hmm. powerful. Very, this has been the most powerful age and stage of my life, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, because it's not that you don't, well, you don't care what people think or say, not in a, not in a, um, a cons not in a conceited way, but just in a way that you're determined to practice authenticity at every at moment. And oftentimes yeah. that requires prudence, wisdom, discretion. Uh, it's not about announcing anything. It is about being the real, the deep truth of it. And mm. uh, as you get serious about yourself, um, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of stuff just falls away. I mean, just falls yeah. away. And you've got all this time. And this is great because it's a match. You're getting serious and there's heaps of time. So what are you going to do? I'm going to study. I'm going to work out. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to read. I'm going to get active in my mind. I'm going to master my mind. I'm going to um, regulate my emotions. If I 
find it difficult, I'm going to uh, find practical tools. If there's something I can't do, I'm either going to get someone to teach me or I'm going to get someone to do it for me in terms of a business thing. So um, mm. I, I find that my morning routine sets me up because there's really no structure to the rest of my day. It, it's mm. a free-for-all, really. And, mm. and I am mm. the kind of person who will run four, five, maybe six tasks at, a, at the same time, really at the same time. Yeah. So if I don't have that, that yeah. bedrock of structure in the morning and it is, you know, it's, it's going to sound really boring, get up, make the bed, stretch, get coffee, come down, journal, pray, meditate, read, exhale. That might take one hour to do that. And then 40. It's a lot in one hour. Wow. I'm up at 5.30 every day, up at 5.30 and I hit the sack at 8.30. Early to bed, yeah. early to rise. And it is a rhythm, mm. you know, and it's the, that's the gift I give myself. This is the highest act of self-love in my life. This is it. That hour and then from there, it's 45 minutes in, in the gym, which is the garage. Uh, you know, 45, 45 minutes to an hour working up a sweat because it keeps me um, mentally pleasant. I, yeah. I find that it's it, um, it's nice to be inside my head when I'm working out. Yeah. Um, it, it it actually may, if I work out today, tomorrow will be good up here. Yeah. So, uh, do you work out in silence? No, no. I have music. I have music on. Yeah. And I often get mm. great ideas for writing. I get great ideas, um, commentary about uh, life or. Who knows? I get great ideas for writing, and I and I email myself the whole time I'm working out. I stop, email myself on the phone, uh, or try and dictate into the memo thing, and um, yeah. and then get on with it. You know, I must write it down straight away. I know I will forget. I, this is a this is a technique I learned with songwriting. You must honor yeah. everything that comes. Honor everything that comes. Ten. You know, let's say 18 out of 20 things will be rubbish. Who cares? You must honor everything that comes so that, so that it keeps coming. If you say, oh, that's no good and don't write it down, or even worse, oh, gee, that's great. I'll write it down when I finish working out. Not going to happen. First of all, if you dishonor the thing, the next one won't come. Second of all, you're not going to write it down when you finish working out because you're not going to remember. And you're not going to remember the very succinct, punchy way that you put those words together and that's very important to me anyway no it makes sense to me it's i use a an app on the phone and and speak into it but i'm going to do it more now because of this conversation deborah okay well, absolutely i've learned that with songwriting you can write a hundred mm. songs 20 will be good five will be great and one will be excellent but you had to write yeah. the hundred you had to write yeah. them all and you've got to do this with everything, with painting. I heard, I heard a great saying, if there's not a large pile of bad art in the studio, you're really not doing the work. So a lot of artists get free just by hearing that. I mean, I certainly did. I thought, oh, phew. I thought I was the only yeah. one who had a large, a big pile yeah. of bad art. But that means you're doing the work. Uh, even today I was thinking, oh, God, I've made so many mistakes in this last year. And then the other 
side of me, maybe the person I call my future self said, isn't that fantastic? You're making mistakes because you're pushing the boundary. You're pushing out the boundary lines. You're doing new things. If you weren't making mistakes, you'd just be repeating the same old things you knew. But I'm making lots of mistakes because I'm making progress. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. You, you, fail, you fail your way to success, actually. Who, who knew? Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we may have not accepted it for so long. What would you like people to walk away with from this conversation, Deborah? Well, I think certainly a sense that it's never too late. Yes. Um, it's possible that the greatness within you is not something you thought of or knew about. It's possible that your life's work or your purpose or what you thought was the best thing about you is it, just something that you never really thought something you never dreamed of, something you weren't expecting. You know, I think that there are, there's much more to us than we know. And it's when we get mm. lost or finished, we, we get to the end of ourselves and something appears mm. and um, go with that, whatever it is, go, go with it. Just explore, just explore it. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. It's a really good way to end. And I also want to say to people that you have brought your music career out of retirement now because of all of this reinvention and trust and everything. And I kind of wanted people to know that too. Yeah. So thank you so much, Deborah. That has been amazing. Thank you for not. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Deborah and her work, please check out DebraDecember.com. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H-D-I-C-E-M-B-R-E dot com. And if you love listening to this podcast, please leave a five star written review in Apple Podcasts. It helps me understand what's working and encourages others to take a listen, which would mean the world to me. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care. <laughs>